This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Hendricks Center for Cultural Engagement, and today our topic is biblical ethics. And our expert today is Dr. Daniel Carroll Rodas, who is Distinguished Professor of Old Testament at Denver Seminary and who has uh, done uh, work in particularly 8th century prophets of the Old Testament and ethics. And I think I'll start off by saying, how do you put those two together? <laughs> Where does that come from? Well, thanks, first of all, for having me, Daryl. Um, I think yeah, the, those 8th century prophets are full of ethics. Mm-hmm. I mean, poverty and war and the role of religion, how that's all wrapped into that. And so that's one of the reasons I got into it. But also just spending so many years in Latin America mm-hmm. uh, where those ethical issues are in your face, and the war and the poverty when I was there especially. Now the immigration issue. So you, you have to engage those real-life issues. And so that's how it all came together years ago. And so you've been shifting from, uh, from dealing with uh, what we might call raw exegesis and, and those kinds of issues into moving into these areas and their practical areas and wrestling with the hermeneutics of how we move from the 8th century uh, BC into into our era. Let's talk a little bit about your background because it's going to be important, I think, okay. to the conversation we're going to have. Um, uh, this is hard to do because Danny and I grew up together, so uh, I've known Danny since second grade. So, um, but anyway, you you went to seminary and then did your doctoral work overseas in Sheffield and in, in England, and then uh, you spent is it three terms in Guatemala. At uh, at Sateca in Guatemala City. Well, we actually uh, went for a term to, to Central America before Britain, okay. which is actually good because it set up a lot of issues that I wanted to get to when I went there. Mm-hmm. So we were in Latin America for four years, went to Britain, and then we came back for nine. Okay. So it wasn't a neat and tidy, you know, three, three terms. terms. It yeah. was three plus okay. terms. Yeah. And you taught Old Testament at, at Zateca as well? Old Testament and biblical, ethics. and biblical ethics. And so you can see even back then that, in fact, right. my title back then was uh, Professor of Old Testament and Ethics. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is even back then I was trying to, to put those two together. My doctoral work was in that as well. Now, I, I, my own take on, on our topic is, is that ethics, although it, it's obviously prominent in the Scripture, how we live is pretty important to Scripture, mm-hmm. is kind of a blind spot in the way the church has thought about and written about and engaged on theology, at least in certain segments of the church. And my illustration for this is the Nicene Creed. You know, that, that many churches will have a historic creed that they utter as part of their confession to show their roots back to the past. And the Nicene Creed is a classic example of a classic creed. It's a fundamentally Trinitarian creed. And then at the end, there are a few little things added beyond the Trinity to, to uh, kind of round out the confession. But there is not a word in the entire creed that has an ethical 
element to it. It's strictly this is this is who I confess God to be. Yeah. And uh, and, and I think even if you look at some of the our more recent creeds, um, evangelical creeds from the last century, et cetera, you'll see the same kind of thing where there's a, a lot of confession about what we believe factually about certain aspects of theology, but the issue of ethics is not so prominent. And this may not be an entirely fair question, but why do you think that would? Why do you think we have that blind spot? Why do you think that omission exists? Well, it's interesting uh, because what we have is a doctrinal Christianity, mm-hmm. and in evangelicalism, it's even more specific. Specific, it's not only certain doctrinal positions, but it's very Pauline. For mm-hmm. instance. Uh, so the Old Testament doesn't make much of an appearance. Maybe, again, I'm not a church historian, but the little that I know, the Reformation is born out of theological debate. Mm -hmm. It's not born out of ethical debate. Mm -hmm. And then as the Reformation goes on, as you would know, it begins to splinter. Mm -hmm. And the splinters are based on doctrinal differences. I mean, so it's part of the DNA. And I think biblically, though, it's it's not like that. I mean, mm-hmm. the Old Testament, the prophets, um, and I can give you verses if you wanted, but I mean, Jesus himself. I mean, it's about, you know, how will they know that you love me? Because you obey me. I mean, mm-hmm. so the idea of, of wedding obedience and an ethical life, not only individual, which is a whole other discussion, right. uh, but communally, mm-hmm. um, is something that should be part of our self-definition. Mm-hmm. I think, to be honest, that's one of the things that attracts me to certain aspects of Anabaptism, mm-hmm. because the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, you would very much define themselves ethically, right? Not only do- doctrinally, right? Well, it, it strikes me as being a, 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 I, I like to make the observation that you can look at a, a lot of curricula at, se- at different seminaries, and there is no focused course on ethics. There, you know, there'll be a course on exegesis, a course on church history, a course on systematics, a course on preaching. I mean, you can go through a whole myriad of things, but there's no uh, ethical course so that when you come to issues, everything from bio uh, medical ethics to what should you think about war, that kind of thing, um, you know, it isn't covered. Uh, another anecdote that you'll identify with, because obviously we both went here to seminary, is when I went through uh, my seminary training, we were in the midst of coming out of the Vietnam War, uh, but I never had a class that ethically discussed what war. the Bible talked about war. We never right. had a class. So yeah. so when I got asked about things that are classic in, in the history of theology, like just war theory and mm-hmm. what do you do with that, it was like... Yeah, you know, I was starting from scratch. Well, let me follow up with a story. Yeah, uh, I was in Guatemala, and I was there during the time. And some of your listeners may not even remember this, but during the time of the Sandinista Contra issue in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. right? So I remember being in class. Okay, think about our seminary. So training. this is the eighties, right? This would be the eighties. Yeah. So I'm in class, and then a student talks to me afterward. He's from Nicaragua, mm-hmm. and so he goes. During the Contra issue, at that time, um, it was mandatory military service at age 16. Hmm. So he's a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. So your options were to serve for uh, two years at age 16, if you refused to go to jail for three, Hmm. or to join the Contra, or leave the country. And I knew a family who put their teenage sons up for adoption as a way of getting them out. Hmm. So, okay, those are your four options. Mm-hmm. 
And so he goes, profe, as we would say in Spanish, mm-hmm. what do I tell my youth group? Hmm. Okay, just think about where do you even start? Where do you even start? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so because you have to bring in history and sociology and the economics and U.S. foreign policy and what was going on in the Cold War, as well as the whole biblical piece. I mean, but as you said, our training was never mm-hmm. in terms of those issues, which, you know, war and poverty, for instance, are huge biblical categories, mm-hmm. but you don't see them as systematics. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, the seminary where I teach, um, there's a course on that's required kind of culture and engagement and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's very apologetically driven, mm-hmm. you see, which is different that's right. than ethical engagement. That's right. So, again, it's, 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 it's not establishing a coherent, I don't think, uh, that's my take, mm-hmm. a coherent Christian ethical view mm-hmm. grounded in, in, in the scriptures. Yeah, I I really think that this is a, a major uh, major hole in the uh, in the way we do our training. It's in in many uh, campuses it still is, and so what happens is is that these areas of life that impinge on people naturally war poverty um, ethical choices biomedical decisions racism, racism. I mean yeah. the list is long and deep. Um, uh, most evangelical Christians, well, that doesn't fit in the box. I mean, where does that fit in theology proper? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, um, so what, I, what we want to do with this particular podcast is to kind of talk about moving towards um, thinking about the Bible ethically and how you deal with that. You've already sort of set the table by talking about when you approach the question, you not only have the Scripture and what it says, but you've kind of got to put life in its context. Mm-hmm. So uh, so let's start there. Let's assume that you're someone walks up to you and says, um, I want to think about the Bible ethically. Um, where do I start? It, this isn't just a case of cherry-picking verses. Right. Um, so where do I start when I think about how, how to work with the Bible ethically? Well, you're a New Testament guy. I'm an Old <laughs> Testament guy. And what I have to deal with with some people mm-hmm. uh, in my field is that now the Old Testament's very much under suspicion. Mm-hmm. The whole violence of God discussion, and so you almost have to get to square one mm-hmm. that the Old Testament, in my case, actually is worthy as a ethical resource mm-hmm. because even you know, seminary students are asking that question. That's right. Because we never asked that question. That's we just right. assumed. Yeah, I, I, I say to people all the time that what's happened in the cultural change in the states over the last several decades is the Bible's gone from being an answer to becoming the question. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if I were to answer your question, it would have to be at several levels. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we need to do, and I'm doing it in this series I'm uh, here at the seminary this week, is look at narratives. I think mm-hmm. if we get people engaged in narrative, in the stories, they can they can begin to see how the Bible engages life issues mm-hmm. in the stories and its characters. We would say these are historical, but I'm just going to use that language right, for a moment. Right. So I think that helps them to see. The other thing is the whole issue of two more things. One would be uh, linking it back to the mission of God. Mm-hmm. I would go back to Genesis 12 being a blessing to the nations and what does that mean, Mm -hmm. which requires ethical engagement. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, But the third piece would be to do a a canonical approach. And so let me give you an example. For instance, if we're talking about poverty, well, 
there are stories in the Bible about poor people and mm-hmm. how they suffer uh, and the various reasons they suffer, whether it's uh, famine or drought or war. Uh, but you also, this would be like uh, Pentateuchal narratives, for instance, or some of the narratives in Samuel Kings. But then what you get, for instance, is legislation dealing with poverty. So mm-hmm. we need to get to that point, you see, mm-hmm. where you say, we're not just going to have an ethical discussion about poverty. We're going to talk about what are some legislative solutions to this. In fact, the Old Testament has this. Can, can the legislative piece of the Bible help us? And then we would look at the wisdom literature, Proverbs, where you talk about the importance of, the importance of personal ethical decision-making and how it impinges on your on your on your uh, economic life mm-hmm. and stewardship, and then I would go to the prophets and, and talk about a prophetic voice into the systems and into the structures. And so, what you're seeing is a full-orbed, mm-hmm. and this is all just Old Testament. We can tie right. it into the New. Right. But what you're seeing is a full-orbed, multidimensional engagement of the ethical issue of poverty. Mm-hmm. So you're not cherry picking. You're mm-hmm. actually getting a biblical vision that is as complex as the human reality itself. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would say, when in working with narrative and asking how narrative teaches, and I know this is basic, but I think it's mm-hmm. important. They'll say, "Well, and this goes back to your point earlier about you know, oftentimes our ethics are particularly Pauline. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, epistles teach, but narrative just simply illustrates. It mm-hmm. doesn't really teach, and this, of course, undercuts your ability to build this canonical mm-hmm. vision that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about how does narrative teach? Does it does does it give portraits of the way in which life is engaged that we're supposed to reflect upon and learn from? Is that what's what's how does how does narrative do it for us? Well, interestingly, if you look at secular literary theory, mm-hmm. they actually work on this. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Coles has done some good work. Martha Nussbaum, and what you see is that narrative works in ethics in several ways. One is it it actually pictures the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, where you have situations where people are going through things that echo across the centuries, and you mm-hmm. can identify with the situation. But the other thing that's interesting is that even secular th- theory recognizes that what novels do is engage you in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if if you're watching a movie, and a movie's like a a motion picture narrative. Right, right. And and when you're watching a movie and you're engaged, I mean, you're having this conversation in your head, oh, don't do that. Oh, yeah. if you do that, this is going to happen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What the movie is doing is engaging your your ethical sensibilities mm-hmm. and actually training you. Mm-hmm. This is why you have to watch, to be careful what you watch, mm-hmm. because the movie will train your ethical sensibilities for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. So this literature works the same way. So mm-hmm. a good literary piece will draw you into the narrative and not only picture for you the scene, but also engage you ethically so that you are actually thinking through what are the options that you would take if you were put in that same place. Mm-hmm. And you also see the good and the bad consequences of the choices that the characters are making. Mm-hmm. So the reading exercise is actually, is actually an exercise in ethics. Mm-hmm. So. Literary theory sees this. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is bring this into the biblical discussion more mm-hmm. and more because what happens, and you would know this as an exegete, mm-hmm. sometimes exegetes are bad readers. Mm-hmm. They're good they're good engineers. Yeah, they can parse a verb and, parse and, and look and, for the background. And do an outline yeah. uh, or something like that. But they don't really understand how language works, how literature works. Mm-hmm. And in the Old Testament side, I would say the same. There are few Old Testament people that I believe actually know how the literature can work mm-hmm. for moral training. Mm-hmm.
God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So, so what you're saying, in effect, is is that is that even the way we've done our training of people to study scripture has not led them into the place where they are encouraged to engage in a kind of ethical reflection based upon the way the literature works in presenting whatever the dilemma is or whatever or, or whatever it is we're dealing with. And the, you have the whole cultural issue of people, some people don't read very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Or they're used to reading a computer screen, mm-hmm. CNN, it's a sound bite. Mm-hmm. But the idea of working through a narrative, mm-hmm. of looking at the scene, of engaging a novel, mm-hmm. um, for instance. And a good example of how all this works, Daryl, is a Dickens novel mm-hmm. where he's very detailed on the descriptions of the scene and the characters. and his novels very self-consciously are ethical statements, you mm-hmm. see. And so if you properly engage Dickens, even A Christmas Carol is an ethical statement mm-hmm. of mid-19th century London, mm-hmm. right? It's not right. just, it's Christmas time, we must have a Christmas Carol. Right. I mean, he's making a statement about mm-hmm. the abuse of economic power mm-hmm. and the suffering of a poor family. His solution was the rich man comes alongside as the patron and helps them. I mean, mm-hmm. You see this in all of his novels, mm-hmm. right? That was his solution. Mm-hmm. But we actually sometimes have to train our students to read again Mm -hmm. because they're used to sound bites. They're used to the visual movie. Mm -hmm. But they actually just stop and read. So when I teach my Old Testament narrative sections, a lot of it is very self-consciously acting it out, Mm -hmm. very self-consciously working, you know, raising my voice or speaking in a whisper, Mm -hmm. you see. And, 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 taking on the different characters, Mm -hmm. and they begin to get into it. Mm -hmm. And they'll say to me, I've never seen it this way. Mm -hmm. It's a shame. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they've been taught to read it for principles. Right. Not to engage it as literature. Right. And so so the whole area of way in which characters are presented and what they reflect and what they represent, what values they carry, that kind of thing, tends to go off to the side, and you've lost your ethical dimension. I mean, some ways the in some ways, when you come to the prophets, it's a little easier because they're a little more direct. They're they're in some ways more like a they're somewhat more like a, like the things you do see in in epistles, where the where the um, challenge of uh, of the prophet is kind of in your face, and you have to be pretty blind to miss it sometimes. Uh, whereas narrative tends to be a little more subtle uh, and a little harder to get your hands around. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, David Bathsheba story, Second mm-hmm. Samuel eleven. I mean, mm-hmm. the last line of the chapter mm-hmm. uh, says something like, "And hey, what David did was displeasing the eyes of the Lord." I mean, mm-hmm. that's what you know. There it yeah. is. Yeah. Okay, but then in Second Samuel thirteen, is a few chapters over. You have the rape of Tamar, mm-hmm. 
And so people want that one line. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there is no one line. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see her saying, don't do this. This will shame you mm-hmm. and me. And uh, But if you keep reading the narrative, this triggers mm-hmm. the revenge of Absalom, mm-hmm. the rebellion by Absalom. I mean, everything starts to unravel, mm-hmm. you see. So in the narrative, the narrative is telling you this is horrible because look at all the things that it generated. Mm-hmm. But the students want the, the line. one line. Yeah. You see. But there is no one line. Mm-hmm. But if you – and that life isn't a one-liner. Mm-hmm. You see, because you tell people, you, you have kids, I have mm-hmm. kids, and you go, boy, you know, if you do this, these this is what could happen. Mm-hmm. And, and they will find out and learn in the narrative of their lives. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that means we've got to be better readers mm-hmm. uh, and, and more careful readers, and we've got to think about uh, narrative in a different way. You did something um, in what you presented uh, today, even though this podcast is going to go out you know, weeks from now. Um, uh, you did something today that I thought was interesting that I thought might be worth also getting people to think about how narrative works as we move to talking about ethics, and that is you told the story of Abraham as an immigrant. Mm. And, you know, normally in our circles when we go to Genesis, we go to Genesis for the Abrahamic covenant. Here's the right. promise made to Israel. And, yeah, Abraham took a little bit of a journey and, it you know, it took a while and that kind of thing. But he eventually, you know, worked his way there and, and, and the promise was planted. And that's, that's about all you, you get out of it. Mm-hmm. But you were trying to get us to think through, if I can say it this way, where Abraham was, where his location was, what what he was as God took him through, what he went through, and how that can be a lesson for us. Can you can you uh, illustrate that and elaborate that for a little for us for a little bit? Yeah, let me illustrate that and then tell you how I was taught it. Okay. Okay, and there you'll see the okay. the, the comparison or contrast. Yeah, what I was telling this morning in chapel was the Genesis twelve, where he's been called out of her end of the chapter eleven. Mm-hmm. He goes up to Quran, then he comes into Canaan and receives the promise. Abram does in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And we sit on that, mm-hmm. rightly so. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he begins to move into the land and build altars and call on the name of God. All very good. Mm-hmm. But then you get about verse 9 or 10, and it says there was a famine in the land, and, and he picks up the clan, because he's the head of a clan, mm-hmm. not a nuclear family, mm-hmm. and they, they begin to make the trek to Egypt because there there's food. You have the Nile, mm-hmm. uh, so you'll have water, which means you have harvest, which means there is food to eat. Mm-hmm. And so Egypt was always having to deal with people trying to come in mm-hmm. for food. And so they, we know from archaeology they'd set up a series of forts along their eastern frontier to help monitor the movement of so mm-hmm. it's very human. I mean, mm-hmm. what's going on? Nothing new on that. On that. That's but their border wall. That's huh? their border <laughs> wall. Yeah. And so what happens is, is they get close to Egypt, and does this mean he's coming up to one of these checkpoints? Mm-hmm. Fort? Don't know. But he tells Sarai, look, if they ask you, tell them you're my sister, not my wife. Mm-hmm. Now, we know from later in the narrative that they are related, but... Mm-hmm. What you see, he's trying to protect himself, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but the driving point of the story is that they're hungry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Abram is willing to lie to get across the border and to protect himself in that move. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what, what is driving them to go there is hunger. Mm-hmm. And she is willing to go through with it for the sake of the family. Now, mm-hmm. It's very wise. I didn't get into this this morning because I was watching the clock. But, um, you know, 
as the brother, if anyone wanted Sarai, they would have to ask the brother for permission to marry her. Mm -hmm. So you could see where at the same time he is protecting her Mm -hmm. and they're just pushing whatever bad thing happens down the road a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I was trying to tell people this morning is that what you see is Abram is hungry and it's why people move because Mm -hmm. they're hungry. And and if it means lying to get across a border to feed your family, you're willing to do it. Mm -hmm. And she's willing to put herself at risk sexually if we're being very blunt Mm -hmm. for the sake of the family. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, so you're reading this as as an immigrant story. Mm -hmm. And I work a lot with immigration, as you know, so I've heard these stories, Mm -hmm. and they're they're kind of like this, you Mm -hmm. know, where they lie to get Mm -hmm. across. But I know when I went to seminary, the ethical debate was, was what Abram actually said a lie? Mm -hmm. And so there was all this kind of maneuvering to get Abram off the hook for Mm -hmm. not actually lying. Mm -hmm. Or if he did, it wasn't really a bad lie, right? Mm -hmm. So what you can see is though though it is echoing immigrant stories, when I got taught, it was all about, is it a lie? Yeah, it's the search for the moral principle and whether or not it works or not. Exactly. Yeah. And so what you're seeing is the search for some kind of eternal moral principle or whatever Mm -hmm is totally, I think, missed the know, narrative the narrative, yeah. and the power of the narrative, mm-hmm. uh, which resonates with a lot of immigrant stories today. And uh, of course, the background of being an alien in a strange land emerges out of that story as a core metaphor that actually uh, runs through the totality of Scripture. Well, this is supposed to be a podcast on narrative criticism, so we'll, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. But, but I, I think the point is well established that sets the kind of the parameters for what we want to discuss, and that is that we really are talking about, when we're talking about ethics in the Scripture, you're really talking about reading the Bible for for the whole of what it is doing, for, for all, the way in which all of it addresses something. Because what happens in ethical discussions is what I find happening, and, and you can almost pick your issue on, on this, where you can think years ago when, when we were debating slavery and there were very biblically oriented people who were defending slavery, you know, uh, to the death. I mean, that's what the Civil literally, War was about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, or you think about um, the way in which gun control is discussed today or immigration is discussed today. And what happens is people pick their place to start and land their discussion as a principle, mm-hmm. and in the process then shed off anything that, it, that comes against that. Uh, my own take on, on working and thinking about this is that actually what you have in Scripture is a much more complex and actually lifelike situation. That Scripture addresses the tensions of life, and, it, and stories tell uh, or address the topic from those tension points. And so when you assemble a topic as a whole, what you see is you'll see some passages that are kind of to one side of the question and other passages that are to the other side of the question. And, and the ethical reflection the Bible requires is how do we relate all these bits to one another mm-hmm. as opposed to that's my verse that tells me what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that's a, in a generic hermeneutical way a, a, a better way to think about how, how we approach the issue of ethics? Yeah, I just had two other points. Okay. One is, and I know you would agree with this, but we would talk about trajectories. Right. So it's not just assembling on a flat surface. Right. 
we're seeing a trajectory from the old into the new. Mm-hmm. I mean, so with the coming of Jesus, things happen. Mm-hmm. So we need to to follow the pits and pieces along their trajectory. The, okay. the slavery would be a good example mm-hmm. of that. Um, the other thing that I would say is a hermeneutical recognition of how our placement affects the picking and choosing and the assembling of the pieces. You see. So, so in other words, where we are may actually, well, it does impact the way in which we read and what we're drawn yes. to and what we're drawn away from. Yeah, I mean, it's a, if we stick with slavery, okay, uh, if you have lived in a system that sees this as natural and the way things should be, and if you have a position of power within that system, you will actually read Scripture to defend that, usually unselfconsciously, you know, mm-hmm. because you just think it's normal. You see, mm-hmm. and so part of of the ethical reading exercise is not only looking at the data of the text and their trajectories, but also stepping back and asking yourself, why am I reading this the way I read it? Mm-hmm. I teach a course on reading the Old Testament from the majority world. And a lot of it has to do with ethical things. But my opening exercise, the first day of class, is looking at the reading of the Old Testament in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And it's a great exercise mm-hmm. because they're just it just makes it so stark. Mm-hmm. i got to stay close to the microphone. Yeah, that's no problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it makes it so stark because then they begin to see just how clearly mm-hmm. these choices are being made, mm-hmm. you see, and how Jesus now becomes a problem because Jesus is a Jew, you mm-hmm. see, so you've got to work around that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, well, if you're an Old Testament professor during Nazi Germany and you are a card-carrying Nazi, mm-hmm. which some well-known Old Testament professors were mm-hmm. that we would now even use to today, mm-hmm. uh, what do you do with the Old Testament, you see? And so I take them to that exercise. And then to look at Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. as well. So not only is it a reading exercise in the ivory tower, mm-hmm. see, now it becomes a reading exercise of counting the cost of life, mm-hmm. which ultimately is where ethics will take you. You've mm-hmm. got to make choices on slavery, mm-hmm. on immigration, mm-hmm. on women's suffrage, mm-hmm. uh, abortion. And, and now the choices you make and how you read actually may require a cost. Mm-hmm. And that's something most readers haven't thought about because sometimes the reader is the comfortable suburbanite where he's never had to, or he or she's never had to engage the cost of reading, mm-hmm. you see. Uh, but an ethical issue is ultimately, at some time or other, there's a cost to reading the way you read. Well, you know, the, the, there are two ways I like to illustrate this. One of them involves an experience uh, that, that involved uh, the class we used to take down to Guatemala together where I would take students from Dallas and you take students from Denver. We go to Zateca, mix them with the Latin American students, and we talk about for the students we bring out from the states how is seeing what you're seeing in a majority world country where you're being exposed to poverty like you've never seen it before impacting the way you read text well one thing that almost all the students always would say on the coming back from that trip is i never not only did i i knew the scriptures on poverty were there but I never saw them quite so clearly as I did looking at the kind of poverty that I was seeing in, in, in portions of Guatemala. But the example I like to raise is a passage in Luke. It's the passage where John the Baptist says to the soldier, you know, don't take advantage of the person and be comfortable with your wage. And in a culture where generally the military is, 
here in the States is generally respected and viewed positively. You don't deal with a lot of corruption. You don't deal with a lot of abuse. I mean, it's there, but it, yes, it, there. it's not the it's not the dominant feature of what you think about it in the context of the military. And then going to a country where the issue of the military and how they handle people is very much – and the issue of – integrity and those kinds of very much on the table, all of a sudden I realized if I preach this passage in Dallas, Texas, okay, people in the pew aren't nervous. They they get it. They, they sort of get it. Oh, yeah, that's a nice text. If I preach that passage in certain parts of Guatemala, my life could be at stake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so just the sheer movement of location changes what's happening with that passage. And we sometimes don't get that. We sometimes read our text. We sometimes read the biblical text as if the biblical text is located in the same suburban environment that we live in, as opposed to being in the context of the life that the text was actually addressing. And that makes a big difference. Yeah, I, you know, I'd say two things. One is following up on the class in another illustration. Um, we would have the experience. I still take students down, but mm-hmm. um, where the Americans would be discussing uh, American author who was right. significant, uh-huh. right? Um, and the Latins would go, "Well, who's that?" Yeah, and so the you know the life and death kind of doctrinal thing up here was like totally lost, lost or irrelevant. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good exercise. The other thing that I tell my students is this, and this piggybacks on the idea, because a lot of theologizing and critique of the Old Testament is that God is violent and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. But I tell them, I said, it's so easy to criticize some of the Bible. It's, it's life-likeness mm-hmm. because it's so uncomfortable mm-hmm. and to discount it. But that's what actually I think shouts out its inspiration, that it is so lifelike. And I say to my students, look, if this can't, if your theology can't work in the streets of Damascus today, mm-hmm. then let's just go home. Mm-hmm. Right? If it works in your suburban mm-hmm. university setting and you go to your office and you put up your computer and then you go to the cafeteria for lunch and you go home and read your books and write your reviews, mm-hmm. okay, that's Disney World. Mm-hmm. Beirut and Damascus, that's life. Mm-hmm. Guatemala City, mm-hmm. that's life. Mm-hmm. And what we find in the scriptures is that's the life they're engaging. Mm-hmm. It's a life in the Old Testament where war is part of existence, mm-hmm. where famine and drought is regular, mm-hmm. where disease is no doctors. I mean, so so the harsh edges of life is what is assumed, mm-hmm. whereas for us it's the exception. Mm-hmm. And if we begin to look at the Bible that way, I think it'll be much more powerful mm-hmm. than what we sometimes do to minimize its power. Join us next week for part two of The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.